Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Lieutenant Colonel Eric Doe, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Mr. Kellum, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. Uh, I am uh, very happy to have met you through your uncle, Clint Pierman. Um, tell me about uh, Uncle Clint and, and why Uncle Clint thought of you uh, for being on this podcast. Um, my, my Uncle Clint always thinks of me because he holds me, I guess, in, uh, in, in high regard. Why? I will never know because um, I don't think that, uh, that my experience can hold a candle to his, but, uh, but he holds me, I guess, in, uh, in high regard, um, probably has something to do with my military experience. You know, I followed, uh, I followed after him in his footsteps, uh, coming up and, um, I'm one of, I no, I take that back. I'm not one of the only nephews. I'm the only nephew that went into service, um, you know, as part of my career. So that, that may have something to do with it as well. Yeah, I would have to, uh, he couldn't wait to tell me about you. So I'm, I'm glad we're able to, to connect and do this. Yes. All right. So, uh, you you're a northerner, right? Would you consider yourself a northerner? Yes. Yes. Gu guilty as charged. Uh, what part of the world you grew up in? I was born in long Island. I was born on long Island. Cause no one's born in an Island. I was born on long Island. Um, spent my first year there. And then as an infant, um, my family moved down to Florida for a little while, but then, you know, my formative years were spent back, um, back, uh, on long Island. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, your uncle Clint, I don't know if you know the story just real quickly. And we'll, we'll we don't have to talk about uncle Clint the entire time, but he, uh, he said he moved when he was 10 down to Florida and he thought mm -hmm. it was a vacation. <laughs> the next thing he knew he spent the next eight years in Florida. yes 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 um so my uncle clint is um is my obviously my i don't want to say obviously but this is my uncle from my mother's side of the family and um he's not that much older than my oldest brother so um you know they they all went to you know, Uncle Clint, I, I want to say, went to the same high school that my brother came up, uh, you know, going, my oldest brother, Dean, that he went to. Um, and yeah, you know, after after high school, it was almost uh, it was almost assumed because all of my uncles uh, entered into service shortly afterwards. But uh, but yeah, during their during their time in high school, they, um, you know, excelled in sports and sell excelled, uh, you know, academically and. Um, and really left a mark on that part of Florida. Yeah, uh, Clint is also like still competing in track. The, uh, the the senior games. Oh my God! If you ever get a chance to watch him run, um, it's uh, it's it's amazing that he's been able to stay that healthy and that competitive for that long. But it's it's in his blood. It's in his blood. Yeah, he he's lived a life where he's clearly athletic. Did he tell you about his uncle Reggie? He did not. His uncle Reggie competed in the Olympics as, uh, as, as, as a track and field guy. Yes. Uncle Reggie ran in the Olympics. Um, he was, he ran the, uh, the, um, Oh my God. He, I know he ran the 800, but I think he ran the 400 and the 800 in the Olympics. 
Wow. So, yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's amazing. Pyramids breed athletes. That, that's what they do. Yeah. He told, did you know the story of the pyramids in uh, Bermuda? Yes. That's a great I, 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 don't, I don't know it as well as he does, but yes. Yeah. He, he told that story. I'm like, what? That's, that's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been to Bermuda? Um, as a child, I haven't been as an adult, but, um, you know, we're now we're talking about it. When I say we, my brothers uh, and I are talking about, um, you know, making a pilgrimage back to the motherland and um, and reconnecting with our family because we still have family that we stay in, in touch with um, in Bermuda. Yeah. For anybody that uh, wants to hear that story, uh, Clint's episode's coming out in a couple of Mondays. Cool. Uh, well, and yours is going to come out in, I think, three or four Mondays. I've actually okay. got you in the can. Um, all right. So. How old were you when you moved back to Long Island? Uh, I, I was 11. I was 11 when I moved back to Long Island. And, um, and I spent, you know, as I mentioned, my formative years, uh, you know, growing up in, in probably the best time. I mean, as, as an 80s baby, um, absolute best time to be a kid growing up in Long Island. What was that like? What were you doing? You know, I'm, I obviously, I'm, I'm a Gen X uh, I'm a Gen X guy. So, you know, we, we grew up without cell phones. We grew up, you know, on bicycles. We grew up with the, with the streetlight rule and any kid that grew up with the streetlight rule, you knew when the streetlights came on, you know, it was time to go home. And, um, it was a weird time because, you know, now I would never let my kid go out and roam the streets until the streetlights came on. I'm, you know, that's just not what you do these days. But, um, you know, back then it was, um, you know, it was all about as soon as you get home, hurry up and get your homework done so that way you can get out on your bike, go check on, you know, go check on your friends and, and have that day's adventure. So it was, you know, it's a lot of time outside. It reminds me of, uh, of what they make movies about now. So, you know, growing up in Long Island, at, you know, during that time was, was great. Plus the music, you know, we had, we had everything from, you know, from Bon Jovi to Billy Joel to, you know, uh, I mean, ACDC for the older kids, but we were listening to, you know, hair metal and, um, you know, what better time to be alive. I was listening to a lot of Run DMC. I, I wore out that tape, uh, their first big album. It was. Oh, uh, you, you, are, are you talking about uh, the Kings of Rock? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, One yes. of the best albums ever. Oh, I, Classic, you know, instant classic. But um, you know, growing up during the, you know, during the formative years of of hip hop and watching, you know, watching that art form blossom, being in New York when that was happening, because you know, obviously, New York was the epicenter of um, of that movement until it, you know, made its way out west. But um, just a great time to be alive. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so your parents, like my parents, had no idea where you were once you left. No. No, no ab- ab- absolutely not. And this is before cell phones. So it's not like, you know, they could just pick up the phone and, and call their kid and find out where they were. So there was no guarantee that I was even in the same town. You know, I had friends that lived, you know, two and three towns over. We'd get on our bike and we'd be over there. It might take us an hour and a half, but we were on our way. Yeah. I imagine when you stopped, it was to play a sport. Well, to play something, most likely it was a sport. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Uh, do you have fond memories of Long Island? The the best, the absolute best. Um, you know, the friends that I've made there are, you know, they're, they're some of the friends that I still hold to this day. And, um, you know, that's uh, 
I, I again, I tell my son that, um, you know, don't worry about making lifelong friends in high school. Chances are you'll only leave high school with, you know, a handful of them if you're lucky. But, um, you know, I'm lucky to call a few friends that I've had since uh, since high school, since those times, you know, my friends to this day. When you were in high school, were you more academically inclined, athletically inclined? What kind of kid would you stereotype yourself as? Or Oh, my God, I would. I was the worst. I was the absolute worst because um, I'm going to take that back. I wasn't the worst, but um, I was that kid that had all the potential and never used any of it. Um, you know, I I was I was satisfied with with a, with a mediocre effort because I couldn't see the forest for the trees. I couldn't see why I needed to do as well as I could. Because all I needed to do was stay academically eligible, you know, to compete in in the sports that I was, uh, you know, that I was involved in at the time. So and so that's what I would do. I would um, I would do the bare minimum because I was lazy and I didn't realize at the time how it would impact my future. And um, you know, my mom had uh, you know there was what, five kids in the house at the same time. So she couldn't focus on all of us. And, uh, you know, teachers weren't sending letters home. So um, she just assumed I was good. And you were um, doing just enough to stay out of uh, mom's focus. Staying out of the crosshairs, doing yeah. just enough, you know, getting by. But, um, but yeah, um, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed playing sports. I was a three sport athlete. I ran track. I played basketball. I played football. And as long as I was academically eligible and the teachers weren't sending notes home, I was, I was absolutely fine being mediocre. What position did you play in football? I was a defensive back. So, uh, you know, the, you know, what, what do you call a wide receiver that can't catch? A defensive back. A defensive back. So, uh, yeah, that was me. If I uh, if, if I had the hand skills, I probably would have been a wide receiver. You know, I was quick and fast, but I didn't have consistent hands. So, uh, but yeah, I, I could I could make a pass uh, break up with the best of them. Did you uh, play corner mostly? Um, I I I would move from corner to safety because. Um, you know, football then wasn't the same football now. Um, now I would probably, if, if I was going to define my position now, I would be a safety, but back then it was just a corner. Um, but, uh, that, that position wasn't as defined as it, as it is in, um, high school athletics today. It wasn't uh, as strict, you know, the coach yeah, yeah. wasn't, you know, coach wasn't saying, you know, this is your position. This is you know, the part of your field. I wasn't putting anybody on Revis Island, but, um, but yeah, you, you weren't going to throw to my side of the field either. Yeah. Did, uh, I imagine like me, you look back at the football equipment, especially the helmets, they were not really protecting our heads. Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. You know, and, um, you know, but would you look, you look at what the kids look like back then you look at what they look like now, you know, going through equipment sizing and, and issuing, they just said, you know, grab a pair that, that, that fits, you yeah. know, it wasn't like, you know, this is your position. These are the pads that you need to be wearing now. So everybody looked like, uh, looked like they were drowning in their equipment, but who knew? Yeah. If we knew, uh, then what we know now, maybe things yeah. would have been a lot different, a lot different. All right. So, but you're, you're in high school, you graduate and, mm -hmm. At what point do you know that you're going to go uh, to college? Um, I so 
all right, so here we are. I'm, I'm in high school. I graduate, right? I tell my mom that, uh, you know, I, I needed a break. I was like, I, there's no way that I'm going right to school. I'm done with school. I need a break. So my mom says, okay, no problem. You got six months. At the end of those six months, you're either going to get a job or you're going to go to school. One of those two things are going to happen because you're not going to lay up in my house and, uh, and do nothing. And I can respect that. Um, so I, I took every bit of that six months and, um, and used it before going back to, uh, to school. But I knew I was going to go to school, but she was going to give me six months. Absolutely took advantage of it. So, um, so what I did wanted, you do for that six months? I, 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 I did a lot of soul searching. I did a lot of reflecting and I traveled. As a matter of fact, I went out and visited my, uh, my uncle Clint during those six months and little did I know then, but that was, uh, you know, a very, um, what's the word I want to use? It was, um, it was a very influential time. You know, the things that he was doing at that time, cause he was still a Marine when I, when I went out to visit him and, um, the influence I had from seeing what he did for a living helped, um, you know, make future decisions for me very easy, but I wanted to be a cop. Cause if you remember the TV show cops, you know, was real big at that time. So I was like, man, I want to run and gun with, uh, with these guys. So I went to school and I, I studied, um, I studied, uh, uh, criminal justice because that's what all kids in Long Island do. They study criminal justice and they take the, uh, the police exam to get on with either the Nassau police department, the Suffolk police department, because those are the two highest paid PDs, you know, in the nation, you know, or you take your talents to the city and you get on with the NYPD. And that was the goal. I wanted to be a New York city police officer. And, um, and, I, and it was just because of how you had, had thought about it based on that, that show cops. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what I thought policing was, you know, good guys chase the bad guys, good guys catch the bad guys, high fives all around on to the next episode. So I didn't realize what being a cop was actually like until I became a deputy sheriff. Did, is that what you became right after you graduated? No, sir. No, sir. Not at all. So right after in between graduating, uh, right before I graduated, I, I should say, um, I took another break and I went down to Florida, um, and I went to the police academy in Florida because at the time, um, again, my uncle Clint went to high school with the director of the police academy in, um, in central Florida, in Ocala, Florida. So he said, yeah, if you want to go, I'll make a phone call and I'll make sure that, uh, you know, I put in a good word for you. I apologize. My other computer's shutting off. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I paused my education and i went down to the police department or well to the police academy in central florida at cfcc central florida community college and i graduated at the top of my class and i was recruited by a bunch of departments in florida you know they all come to the graduations and they interview people for uh, for follow-on jobs and i told um i told the uh the hiring uh, officer from the Alachua County Sheriff's Department, I said, give me, you know, give me um, a year so that way I can go back and finish my degree. And right after I finish my degree, I'll absolutely, you know, come down and, and interview for a position with you. And, and I did, I was, I was geeked, you know, to have, you know, people interested in, um, 
you know, in my services at the time. So, uh, you know, 100%, I came back, finished my degree, picked up the phone, and I called that one person because that person had offered me a position. So um, I went down to the Alachua County Sheriff's Department, and I became a deputy sheriff um, right after graduation. And it wasn't until I became a deputy sheriff that I realized, hey, this is absolutely not for, this is nothing like the TV show. What am I doing here? Yeah, the, the the TV show doesn't show you uh, the endless hours of boredom. Oh, my God. My my field training officer said being a deputy is understanding this job is 90% boredom and 10% sheer terror. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, in, that's a pretty in, accurate description for most jurisdictions, I imagine. In, enjoy the downtime. That's what he said. Enjoy the downtime. But, yeah. um, you know, if life is a collection of experiences, that was one that um, I truly enjoyed. Yeah, so it's funny that you're familiar with Ocala, Florida. I, I played baseball in high school, and we went down there on spring break, and mm-hmm. I was wearing my my baseball jacket and it said Richmond, Virginia on the back of it. And I had a guy over the left field fence, and that's where his house was, was yelling at me, mm-hmm. go, go home, Yankee. <laughs> I'm like, what? Where am I? I'm, I'm from Virginia. I'm not from Massachusetts or or Maine or Vermont or something. What are you talking about, man? Yep, yep, yep. yep. That's um, when I realized uh, not all of Florida is beach line. No, 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 definitely not. Definitely yeah. not. As soon as you get into the interior, it becomes very different. It's uh, quite, uh, it, it's almost like Alabama, I think, in some ways. Well, it borders Alabama. Um, I went to flight school, which, um, you know, is, is, is a little bit further down my timeline in, in L.A., uh, lower Alabama, not yeah, yeah, not California, yes. but lower yeah. Alabama. So um, not Louisiana, so, yeah. Los Angeles. <laughs> no, Alabama. lower Alabama. Yeah, but um, but yeah, that uh, that that part of the United States is is very interesting. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yes, we'll, we'll leave it at in- interesting. Yes. So, how long were you a deputy? Um, I was a deputy for um, for just under three years before I had had a belly full of it and decided that. Um, you know, I needed to, I, I needed to make a change. And that's when I went back to school to, you know, figure out what I was going to do as an adult. Um, and, you know, it, it's a good thing that I did because that's where I met my, um, that's where I met my wife. Um, and had I not met her, had I not left when I left, I would have never been in the, in the position to, to meet her. And she was absolutely, you know, she, she was, she, she's the game changer. Well, so, so undergrad, let's just get this out there so it's recorded. Uh, you went to Hofstra, right? Was was Hofstra yes. just what kids from Long Island did? They, a lot of a lot of you guys just go to Hofstra. Um, well, you know, it, it's it's the local university, you know, for kids that are uh, that that are that are coming up on Long Island. So it's not uncommon to see half your graduating half your high school graduating class enrolling at Hofstra. Uh, great school. You know, phenomenal school, but um, I didn't realize the difference between um, a private school and, and a public school. So Hofstra being a private school, the money I was paying to go there, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know that, that it was expensive until I talked to friends that are going to other universities. And I'm like, wait, what, 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 what do you mean your, your tuition is only, you know, $5,000 a year? My, my tuition is like $5,000 a day over here. But uh, <laughs> But not great, great school. I wouldn't change it for the world. All right. So you went to 
back to school after three years uh, as a deputy. What, what school did you go to then? Um, that's when I went to Hofstra. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So wait a minute. Was Hofstra master's program or on finishing your undergrad? That was finishing my undergrad because remember, I finished my associate degree um, before becoming de- becoming a, a deputy, and then went back to finish my undergrad. Got it, got it. Now that makes sense. Yeah, and you were telling me when we uh, talked a few weeks ago, who were the famous Hofstra grads that people would know? Ah, famous Hofstra grads that people would know. There's a lot of Hofstra grads. Now you're putting me on the spot, and I don't have my my cheat sheet with my list, but there's Wayne a lot. Corbett, Wayne Corbett's one of them. Wayne Corbett from the New York Jets wide receiver. Um, I went to school with him. Great guy. He's the exact same person uh, that that you think he is when uh, when when you if if you get a chance to meet him, he is just the most humble person, and um, you know just just a phenomenal athlete. And again, he's he's one of those people that um, wasn't supposed to be a professional football player, but he was so good that you know that that people couldn't deny him those opportunities. So. But Wayne Corbett was uh, was one of them. Marquise Colston is yep. another football player. He played, was another wide receiver. Went uh, went down to New Orleans and played with the Saints for a little bit. Um, you know, a cu- couple of linemen uh, that came off of that team. But um, outside of that, most of the people that you'll know from Hofstra are in uh, the arts, uh, theater. Um, a couple of um, uh, I-, I wish I could call their names, but. Um, That's okay. But quite a few people that um, that went on into you know television, film, and movies. Yeah, that's really cool. And and Hofstra's kind of known for that. It sounds like it is. Yeah. It is. It, uh, it has a, a, a very very good drama department. Um, but uh, but nowadays, I mean, it's it's grown up so much. I mean, Hofstra has its own medical school now. It uh, it had a law school that um, that was just uh, that was just outside of reach when I was um, when I was graduating. But I would have loved to have gone back and, and studied law at Hofstra. But you know, it's one of those schools where, regardless of what your, um, you, what your passions are, they have programs to help you get there. Yeah, that's. Uh, I had no idea they had a medical school. Hmm? I mean, that, that, that's a private institutions with medical schools is not common. I don't think. No, no, but um, it was absolutely the. Uh, it, it was the direction that that they were supposed to go because of um, their undergraduate programs in the sciences. It, it, it only made sense for a medical program, for them to affiliate themselves and um, and develop a medical program, so. All right, so you're 26 when you graduate from Hofstra? I am 26-ish when I graduate from Hofstra, uh, 26, 27. What's the idea? What, what, what were you gonna do? I uh, had no idea. Once again, you know, um, I, had, I had reached the end of this journey without understanding fully understanding what i was going to do next but right before graduation um in my senior year i made the mistake of walking across the unispan and um and there was a a marine corps officer who was who was you know doing some recruiting and i i made the mistake of making eye contact with him and (laughs) i I tried my best to look away i started looking at the ceiling before you know, doing some window shopping in the, uh, you know, in, in the student center. But now nah, he, he it was like pointing me, you come here, you know? So I went over and talked to him and, and, uh, by the time I left that conversation, I, I knew exactly what I was going to do at graduation. I, I was going to be a Marine and, um, you know, 
going back to how influenced I was by, you know, watching what my uncle did, um, you know, however many years ago, I said, you know what, I could do this too. I could absolutely do this. This, this is, you know, this isn't outside of my, uh, my wheelhouse. Um, to make a long story boring, about six months later, I was on my way down to Quantico to be a Marine Corps officer. Yeah. And so, but you're an army guy now. So tell me about the, the journey through the Marine Corps experience to the army. Okay. So my Marine Corps experience is, is, is quite short. Um, I went down to Quantico and, um, and I knew I was going to be a Marine Corps officer until I went to Quantico and, mm. and I finished, uh, I finished the Marine Corps OCS program. And I realized then that mm, I'm not sure I want to be a Marine. Um, you know, with, with all, with all due respect for, you know, for the core, it, you know, the core attracts, the core maintains, the core produces a certain type of, of person. And, um, I realized very early in my experience that I was not the type of person that was going to do well. I was not going to be able to replicate my uncle's success. You know, my uncle served as, as an enlisted Marine and being a Marine Corps officer was going to be absolutely very different. My experience was going to be very different, night and day different. And, uh, you know, my, my drill instructors, cause they, they don't have drill sergeants, they have drill instructors. My drill instructors, um, made it perfectly clear to us, you know, what we could expect. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have it. I'm, I'm, you know, let's call a duck a duck. I, I did not have, I, I could not deliver to their expectations. And I knew that from, from the get go. So right before graduation, right after we came back from the crucible, um, you know, I, I made it clear because that was the, the point where you, you either had to commit and get on the aircraft to go to um, uh, TBS, the basic school, um, the very next day, or you were getting on a bus and you were going home. Mm. And um, that, you know, that that conversation with myself, because I, I did not consult with my uncle, because I, I was a little bit ashamed. You know, I, I was ashamed that, um, you know, I was not going to be able to, you know, to have that shared experience. And I looked forward to it. I, I looked forward to... Um, you know, to doing it. And it was, it was such, um, it was, it was a very hard decision to make, but it was absolutely the right decision. And my mom, um, cause that, that, that's what every boy does. Everybody, you know, you get in trouble, you call your mom, you know, I called my mom and she said, everything happens for a reason. That's right. Everything, your heart's not in it. If your gut's telling you to walk away, you walk away. We'll figure it out. So at the, at the 11th hour, I, I, I walked away from it. And I was 100% scared to death that I had made the wrong decision, but it turned, you know, it turned out to be the absolute right decision because of the opportunities that the army would extend to me afterwards. Yeah. I mean, trust, trust your guts. One of the lessons there, and it sounds like your mom has quite a bit of wisdom. Uh, so you're lucky to have her in your life for sure, especially at that moment. Um, Cause a lot of people would have said, well, I've come, I've come this far and, and all these other people have these expectations of me. Uh, you, you taught yourself something that day that you, you have to do what's right for you. Uh, it's, it's funny. You say that Marines are looking for a certain type of person. Uh, they expect a certain kind of behavior. Uh, I swear if you gave me 30 seconds with a hundred different people, military age, and there was only one Marine, just 30 seconds with each of them, I could tell you which one the Marine was. Absolutely. Yeah, a absolutely. They, they are cut from, from very similar cloth. Yeah. There's no question.
Cool. All right. So did you, you made the decision uh, not to continue your journey with the Marine Corps. Uh, how quickly did you pivot over to the army? Was there something else that happened before you went the army's way? Everything happened. Everything happened. Um, I went home and, um, you know, I, I struggled with that decision for a long time, you know, because it was, it was now I, I had a clear pathway when I was with the, uh, the Marine Corps of, you know, I'm going to go through training and then I'm going to be a Marine. You know, that's, that's what you did. That's your job. But now I'm, I, I left, uh, you know, I left training. What, what do I do? You know, where do I go? What do I do? My, my degree from Hofstra was in political science. Yeah. You ever tried a job as a political scientist? Uh, I, I have a similar major, a major in history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Political, yeah so political science is like, you, you've learned some things. We're not sure what you're going to do with that degree, though. You, it, it, it's a degree that, that prepares you to go back to school, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and I wasn't going to go back to school. I wasn't going to, you know, uh, try figuring it out academically again. No, nah, I mean, at this point, I'm a full-on adult, you know. I have, I have responsibilities. You know, my, my girlfriend at the time, um, you know, who's my wife today, um, you know, she was getting ready to finish um, her master's. She was a speech path undergrad, and she finished her master's in audiology. So, you know, she knew what she was doing, you know, she was focused. And here I am, um, you know, with a degree that I really can't translate into anything practical. Um, so I did what, uh, what everybody else does, you know, that grows up on Long Island. I went to bartending school. I became a bartender. And, um, and good Lord, I mean, it, that I thought, I thought I had reached the promised land. That was probably one of the most amazing careers or amazing jobs. I'm not going to, I'm not even going to confuse it with a career. It is not a career. It is a job hundred percent. So, but it was one of those almost amazing jobs I'd ever had. I mean, it was a party from, from start to finish. When I got to work, we were partying and having a good time. And who doesn't want to do that and get paid for it? Really? Especially when you're in your twenties. Yeah. Especially when you're in your twenties. So you know, I started making, um, I started making great money and anybody that's in the service industry knows that, you know, the majority of that money that you make is, um, you know, you're not, you're not giving it up to, uh, to uncle Sam in the form of taxes. So, uh, I, I pay my tax. Don't get me wrong. I pay my taxes. However, you know, um, a lot of that money is, is discretionary and I discretioned a, a lot of that airy money. So, um, anyway, um, I thought I was doing well until that one faithful day when my you know, my girlfriend at the time, she looks at me, she goes, why'd you go to school? Mm. Because that's what you do. You, you know, you go to college and, 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 and you graduate. And she goes, but well, you know, is this it? Is it, are, are you, are you going to be a bartender? Is, is, is that the best you have? And I, I didn't want to, uh, to come to the realization, but she was, you know, she was painting me in that corner and, um, you know, she uh, she said, Eric, I'm, I'm not going to marry a bartender and broke my heart at, at that moment, broke my heart because I was having a good time. I had shoe boxes full of cash and I thought I was doing well. And she's like one accident, one incident, one sickness or illness. And all of all of what you think you have is gone. So you need to be a big boy and go out and get a real job. So that was the day. And um, it just so it just so happened that it coincided with um, a, another very pivotal point in my life where 
my student loans came due and I couldn't kick that can down the road. I ran out of deferments. Mm. And although I thought I was making good money, um, I realized at the moment I owed $519.20. I'll never forget that number. Wow. Uh, burned into the deep folds. And yeah, I had money, but I couldn't absorb another $519.20 hit. You know, for the next 30 years, wasn't going to happen. So um, again, I, I reached that crossroads where I had to figure it out. You know, what am I going to do? So again, called my mom because that, that's what everybody does. You know, mom, what, what am I going to do? She said, well, you took the loans, pay them. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you 30 days to figure it out. And she did just that. She paid that, uh, that first loan. And, um, and she said, uh, you know, let, let, let me know what you, uh, what you come up with. So I used to have to walk past an army recruiting office every day on my way to work. And when I knew, um, I had run out of deferments, I, I kicked the door open to that recruiter's office. And I said, Hey, I, I need that $65,000 of federal student loan money. And he's like, I knew you were going to come in. I didn't know when, but I knew you were going to come in. So, uh, yeah, that was, um, it was a real simple decision for me. It was a super simple decision to make because they were going to pay $65,000 of my federal student loans. And, um, you know, I was going to be student loan debt free. Uh, yeah. You know. I mean, it, it's very, very appealing. I tell people all the time, the military, pe people join the military either because they're patriots. The judge told them they have two options. You can mm -hmm. send a jail cell or you can join the military uh, or uh, student benefits or, or uh, money for, for education. And uh, it's usually a mix of patriotism and, and financial assistance, but yeah, they paid for my college. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I'll, I'll serve in the army. No problem. Yeah. You know, and, um, I was already drawn to service. Uh, it was something that I wanted to do. I just never imagined myself going back into the military after my experience with the Marine Corps, but, um, it was my experience with the Marine Corps that prepared me, um, you know, to join the army. And, um, and yeah, I, uh, I literally flipped a coin to decide which, uh, which job I would have between air traffic control and uh, becoming a paralegal, a military paralegal. Mm. I flipped a coin and I became a paralegal that day. So I called, I called my mom to give her the great news. Hey, Ma, I figured it out. I know, I'm, I know how I'm going to get that money. She goes, oh, great. Did you get another job? Well, kind of. And um, I told her, I said, I joined the Army. And oh, my God, why did I say that? Because, you know, her generation... You know, kids that joined the army came back, you know, she joined, well, she was, she came up during the Vietnam era, you know, that was the major conflict during her time. And she did not want any of that for her kids. So she said, uh, you know, she, she stopped crying. Well, she, once she stopped crying, you know, she, uh, she said, I'll, I'll pay for your loans. Just, you know, get out of that contract. Tell them you don't want to go. You know, I was like, no, it's going to be fine. I'm going to be a paralegal. She said, what does that mean? I was like, I'm going to work in a law office. And she couldn't wrap her mind around the concept that I was going to be a paralegal for the army because all she knew was, you know, was, was the life of, of, of an infantryman. Right. And I, was like, I got nothing to do with that. So I helped them with their wills and powers of attorney when they're going out to do bad things to bad people. And um, she's like, do you have to go to combat? If I do, it's going to be to be a paralegal still, you know, and she just, she couldn't understand it. But, um, so but, you uh, were enlist. You enlisted. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Did you did you enlist with an OCS option or just straight up enlistment? 
at the time I enlisted, in order to get the student loan repayment incentive that I was after, you had to come in as an enlisted soldier. If you went to OCS, no, no student loan repayment. If you went, um, if you were going to commission, no student loan repayment because they wanted to um, boost the number of junior soldiers, you know, with with college degrees. They wanted to stress education at the time because. You know, Lord knows that when you have um, a, a highly educated junior enlisted force, you know, you become stronger as an organization. So that was the incentive that they put out at the time. And that was the incentive that I bid on. And it was absolutely the right decision. 100% the right decision. I didn't know how much of a right decision it was until later, but absolutely the right decision. Because How old were you when you joined the Army? I was 28. I was 28. So here I am in basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, full grown, full grown, um, you know, with with a bunch of, uh, you know, snot nosed kids around me, um, scared to death about everything that, that the drill sergeant was uh, was talking about. And um, I made a promise to the drill sergeant. I said, I'm, I'm going to be scared when, when you say be scared, I'm going to be scared just for you. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing there was nothing my drill sergeant was going to do to me that the marine corps didn't do to me already so yeah you you had lived 10 years of life that those 18 year olds had not lived yeah yeah so uh how long were you a paralegal uh three years three years three years. that was the original contract that was the original contract as uh as a paralegal and one one fateful day this young warrant officer walks into my office to do to do something, a will, a power of attorney, something. And I swear to you, the theme to Top Gun was playing in the background. You know, this is during the the, the time when warrant officers wore the one piece pickle suits for flight suits. Right. And, um, you know, the most glorious head of hair and, you know, freaking walks into the office. And I'm like, man, this this guy is too cool for school. So I asked him, I said, hey, how do I get to do your job? because your job looks like a lot of fun. And he said, man, if you if you have a college degree, all you gotta really do is apply because they're picking up everybody right now. So I turned around to my Sergeant Major and I looked at my Sergeant and I said, Sergeant Major, I think I wanna fly helicopters. And he said, daydream on your own time. Took a sip of coffee and walked out of the office giggling. And I said, you don't think I can do it. No problem, watch this. And eight months later, I slid orders across his desk saying, you know, Sergeant Major, I gotta go going to flight school. I got selected. And he, you know, he sent me out with his blessings. He was a great star major. I, I, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I have a very high level of, uh, of respect for, uh, for this Sergeant Major. He went on to be Sergeant Major of the Jaguar, um, to give wow. you an idea of how talented he was. And, um, he said, make me a, make me a promise that you won't forget where you came from because, you know, the army needs good NCOs, but they also need great aviators. So go out and, you know, go out and do your thing. Show them, you know, show them what you're made of. And um, I was, again, scared to death because that was never part of the plan. And I didn't tell my wife that I was even applying when I, when I got orders to go. Mm. So now here I am with orders to Fort Rucker and I got to figure out how to tell, you know, my, my, my wife. Now, she's my wife at, at this point that I'm that that idea of four years and I'm going to get out. Yeah, that's not the plan anymore. So, um, you know, I I approached it delicately and. Um, and, and earned her blessing for, for one more, you know, one more time, uh, you know, to, to push my service back. So yeah, went on to flight school and oh my God, you know, I'll, I'll tell you like this, there's two types of people in the army, aviators and those that want to be. 
<laughs> well, hold on. Hold on. Uh, what rank were you when you went to flight school? Well, I, I was uh, I was a W-1. I went as a warrant officer. Oh, you went as a warrant? Yeah, so I was an E-5. I, I got promoted to E-5 one year to the date um, that I promoted to, to W-1. So I was only a, I was only an E five uh, for one year, exactly a year, when I made W one. You've done all three. You've done enlisted, warrant, and commissioned. Yes, sir. Wow, that's that's unusual. It's it's not common, but um, I've known a few people that have uh, you know walked a similar path. Yeah, I, I guess in your community, the, the aviation community, it's more common than somebody like me who spent a lot of time with uh, combat engineers and, and grunts. It's, it's not as common, but in aviation, you, you see it, you know, it's uh, it's not uncommon to see warrant officers, talented warrant officers, um, you know, accept uh, the responsibilities of, of being a commissioned officer. So did you know anything about aviation when you went to flight school? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And um, I learned everything I needed to know about aviation from from the uh, uh, AFAST, because at, at the time it was it was the AFAST. Uh, it wasn't the SIP. Today it's the SIP, but it was the AFAST when I went. Um, I learned everything about aviation from that AFAST study guide. And, wow. Uh, showed up knowing absolutely nothing, and and ten months later they're handing me the keys to uh, you know to a UH sixty Blackhawk, saying, "Hey, bring it, bring it back like like you got it." And uh, uh, how did you? How were you paired? <clears throat> sorry, paired with a Blackhawk? Did you have an opportunity to be an Apache? pilot or another airframe everybody goes to flight school with uh you don't have an aircraft assigned unless you're in like the national guard or you're in the army reserve and your unit is a black hawk unit or your unit is an apache unit you know those kids will go there you know with one option because that's the only thing their unit has so they're going to fly what their unit has but um as a regular army warrant officer we got introduced to all of the airframes. Now, I'll tell you, I went to flight school knowing that I was going to fly Chinooks. Mm. Chinooks, that, that was it for me because this is before GSABs, the General uh, Support Aviation Battalions, were, were a thing. So Chinooks had the mission in Germany. They had all the division-level missions. Mm. And division-level missions, those were, the, those were the jobs you wanted. So I just knew that I was going to fly the Chinook until that uh, that one fateful day when we got to meet the airframes. So, you know, they had all the airframes on the flight line and all the pilots that uh, that flew those airframes. And you got a chance to one by one, you know, walk through it, touch it, play, sit in a seat, do whatever you needed to do to get familiar with the airframe and listen to the aviators as to why they believe their airframe is the best. And man, that Blackhawk, that Blackhawk sat there and said, hey, how you doing? And I was like, <laughs> and, and that was it. That was it. I fell in love with that airframe. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you ask me, it's, it's the best airframe in the Army because of its versatility. Um, you know, we're, we're not the fastest, but, uh, but we, we do the best missions. And, you know, the medevac mission is, you know, is built into the the 60s platform you know today the uh you know the hh60 mics are um there they are flying ambulances you'll 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 never find anything with uh, with better capability as a medevac platform so how did you end up in uh as a medevac pilot um you know so i i branched uh i branched uh you know in into 60s so i left fort rucker as a 60 driver now as a 60 driver 
you can do everything. You can do VIP missions. You can do air assault missions. You can do medevac missions. There's, you know, a, a ton of missions associated with that airframe. So I showed up at Fort Bragg, which was now Fort Liberty, um, you know, as a, as a 60 driver, not knowing what mission I was going to fly. Now I went ahead and, and put on the patches of the unit I wanted to go to because there was, um, there was, a, there was an assault company over there that at the time had the counter drug mission down in Panama. Mm. So I wanted to go fly that counter drug mission, um, and get some of that action. So I, I went ahead and said, you know what, I'm going to show up and they'll see the patches and they'll assign me to that unit. And, you know, cause I'm, I'm going to subliminally tell them that that's the unit I should be going to. I showed up with the patches, the lady at uh, reception, the sergeant at reception was like, who told you to put those patches on? And I was like, I, 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 I want to go to this organization. She said, congratulations. You're going to the 57th med, the original dust off, take those patches off. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, she, she absolutely knew where I was going before I even got there. So again, um, that that was fate telling me, hey, you don't you don't need to be going over here. This is this is where you need to be, and introduced me to the world of uh, of medevac and flying dust off, and uh, fell in love. So when you say flying dust off, uh, tell the the non military person what that means. All right, so flying dust off is um, dust off. Some people will say it's an acronym. It stands for dedicated, unhesitated service to our flying uh, to our fighting forces. Um, the term dust off comes from major charles kelly who um that was his call sign during vietnam mm. and he was you know a medevac pilot medevac is obviously the mission to evacuate the sick and wounded from the battlefield and um, get them to the next higher level of care so your job um is really to fly um you know fly into wherever the point of injury is and pick up whoever is injured and get them to you know get them to the hospital that's the good part of the mission. The bad part of the mission is per the Geneva Convention, we can't have any type of offensive weapons. So we can't go in there, you know, like the Kazabak mission that the Air Force has, you know, and drape miniguns, you know, out the windows and, and, you know, rock and roll on the way in and rock and roll on the way out. I, I wish we could, but, you know, we would lose our protected status as an air ambulance if we had offensive weapons. So um, the medevac mission is, it, it, it's not for everyone. It is absolutely for me. You're, you're never invited to someone's the best day of their life. You're typically invited to the worst day of their life. And um, the, the, the real magic in the medevac mission happens in, in the backseat of our aircraft. That's where the medics, you know, the nurses, the docs, the PAs are, are saving lives. I'm, I'm just getting them, you know, to the point, in, to the point of injury and back. But um, there's no there's no job that's going to give you more satisfaction than saving a life. There's not an award that the army has in its inventory that I would trade for, um, for, for saving a life. Um, knowing that I'm going to make a family whole, knowing that I'm going to keep a family whole, knowing that a mother's not going to have to bury their son, knowing that that little boy or little girl is going to grow up with, with their, with their father or with their mother. Um, that, that's everything to me, absolutely everything to me. And it's heartbreak. It's a heartbreaking job because you know that, you know, we, we can't save everyone, but we, we damn sure fly like, like we, like, like we can. And, um, you know, that was the, uh, you know, 
Charles Kelly was part of the 57th, um, 57th Med Air Ambulance. And when I got a chance to work for the 57th, um, the 57th Med Air Ambulance at Fort Bragg, you know, I absolutely, you know, I, I, I took the red pill immediately and, and, you know, and bought into not only the mission, but the legacy of the mission and why, you know, Charles Kelly um, flew into a hot LZ and the ground commander, you know, waved him off and, and you know, said, you know, we, we can't protect you. You got to get out of here. You got to go. And he looked at that ground commander and said, when I have your wounded, I'll leave. And that was the legacy that he left behind. You know, shortly after uttering those words, when I have your wounded, um, he took a round through the windshield, uh, windscreen, um, and was killed. Mm. So every single dust off aviator from that you know point forward, you know, basically adopted that mentality. You know, if um, if they can, they will. And when they have their when they have your wounded, they'll leave. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a interesting mission, but um, but I love it. It's, it's a critical mission, uh, and yeah, folks in uniform will do whatever they need to do to, to help their their fellow brothers and sisters survive. Absolutely. Uh, and, and hopefully get to a place where they thrive. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's got to be tough um, knowing that you, you – it sounds like you've lost folks uh, either in flight or soon after landing um, at whatever site you land at. Um, have you – Reconnected with uh, anybody that you've flown to safety and to and to care that got them to a healthy place. So, shortly after, um, shortly after our 0708 uh, rotation to Afghanistan, I learned that um, the 173rd out of Vincenza, Italy, uh, chosen company was the company that we were supporting uh, in the region of Afghanistan that we were in, and there was a book that was commissioned to document um, their time in Afghanistan. It's uh, the book is called um, the chosen few by Greg Zoroya. And it, you, you can't tell the story of the 173rd out of Vincenza, Italy in that 0708 rotation without telling the story of Charlie company, third of the 82nd, the all American dust off um, the second platoon gypsies that, um, you know, I was a team leader at, at the time, our stories intersect and it's impossible to tell one without telling the other. So Greg Zoroya got in touch with a lot of us and asked if we would, you know, interview for, um, you know, for his book. And, you know, all of us called all of us and, um, you know, we all decided, yeah, we definitely want to be a part of this. And I learned more about the people I was supporting, the infantrymen that I was supporting from that book, because I didn't know them before I met them. Um, and I met them again. I, I met them at their worst when, when they absolutely needed to get the heck out of Dodge. So um, going back and, and learning who they actually were um, was, was amazing for me. And I got a chance to meet them in person at the book launch and every single emotion, you know, just came right back to the surface because, um, you know, there, there were some people, you know, um, some mothers, uh, Gold Star mothers who lost their, their kids. And, and I remember the missions when we went to, you know, when, when we went to go get them. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, 
it, it was it was it was very interesting and it was um it was very fulfilling um you know to to shake the hands of of those uh of those gold star mothers and and to thank them for uh you know their their child service and to and 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 for them you know to know that um that i was part of the medevac crews that you know that saved some of them you know they were you know absolutely uh you know grateful for what i did but you know i'm saying all i did was fly you know your 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 kids were were the true heroes so eric uh your mom wasn't happy when you signed up and listed as a paralegal in the first place your your wife was probably a little shocked that uh you were extending your time in the army what what were both of their reactions when they found out you were deploying to afghanistan <sighs> neither one of them um you know my mom's like can can is there any way to get out can can you go do something else no mom i i can't get out of it you know i said she didn't understand why i wanted to go you know she couldn't again she could not wrap her mind out of why do you want to go do this and i tried to explain to her that you know training is one thing but if, if, if you train 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 but never get a chance to uh you know to put that training in, into practice, what's the sense of training in the first place? I was like, it's it's like practicing for a team and never getting into the game. I said, this is it, you know, this this is where I, I, I test, you know, all that, I, I put all that training to the test and I see if, if I actually have what it takes. But uh, she was like, yeah, I'll tell you what, you got what it takes, don't worry about it, you can skip all that, you know? <laughs> I wasn't, you know, wasn't excited about it. And my wife, we had just had, my son was, was four months old. Wow. You know, he baby, baby when I left and she, you know, she wasn't trying to be a single mom. You know, she didn't want that for herself. She didn't want that for her family. She didn't want that for me, but um, you know, she knew that that's, you know, that that's part, that's, it's, it's what comes with it. So it's part of the game. Um, yeah, you, your your wife and every wife uh, or spouse of a service member that's been to a dangerous place, uh, they, they go through a lot too. It's it's they do. Uh, it's not easy for them either. My wife is she is unique. She is very unique because um, she I, I like to tell people she's built for this. You know, she is absolutely built for this. She she understands it on a level that most people will never uh, understand it. And um, although she doesn't. She, she would want me to do something else. She supports what I do and why I do it. So um, she is, she is, she is not the typical military spouse. She is, she is far, far above average when it comes to being a military spouse. Um, God bless her. God bless yeah. her. So take me through, uh, and, and I don't have a sense of how long uh, this mission was for you, but you received the highest air medal that you can receive. Uh, in in the army right do i have that right well um sure I, I received the air medal with valor um for this mission uh we were recommended for the distinguished flying cross but um uh we received the air medal for valor with valor okay and, um, it's crazy because the the cjtf uh the combined joint task force commander at the time general rodriguez was what everybody back at um back at the airfield was watching this live because we had we had everything we had all the air force assets stacked on top of one another 
um, the C-130 Spectre gunship was rolling video, live feed of everything that was happening. So all the ground commanders, everybody had a front row seat to, you know, to everything that was happening. And um, General Rodriguez came out the very next day to see us. And he said, you guys are the craziest SOBs in all of the army. And I'm so glad that you're on our team because what we were able to do that evening had never been done in, um, you know, in the history of, uh, of medevac aviation. Um, but what we did, we did out of necessity. We didn't do it, you know, trying to be freaking rock stars. No, we said, okay, how are we going to do this? The one bad thing about, uh, about medevac is that you don't get to plan, you know, where you're going to go, what you're going to do and how you're going to do it the way, you know, other aviation missions are, are thought out and planned. Um, we, we do a lot of figuring it out and making it happen. So um, that night we ended up stacking literally one on top of another two sixties uh, doing hoist missions, you know, out the, uh, out the same door. And um, because I was the junior aviator, um, we got the, we got the, uh, the upper location and the more senior aviators, they got the location below us. They were just getting beaten up by our rotor wash. But, um, but we, we, we pulled it off. We made it happen that night. And uh, we were credited with saving the lives of 12 um, American coalition soldiers that day. And you were, this was at night. This, it started out during the day and it went all the way through the night. And by the time we landed, the sun was coming up. So it was, it was all together um, over a 10 hour mission, multiple extensions of our duty day, multiple extensions from, uh, from everyone up to General Rodriguez, who had to give us, you know, the final extension of our duty day just to be able to fly home. Uh, because, yeah, you're not supposed to fly, you know, missions that, um, that cross, um, you know, that cross from, you know, day to, to night and then night back to day. So, uh, yeah, we were well beyond our allotted duty time. So when General Rodriguez says uh, you're, you're crazy SOBs and I'm, but I'm glad you're on our side, was he talking about the stacked 60s? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he was also talking about, I met you guys were taking fire too, right? We, we were. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but um, because the way we were positioned, um, I was on the right side of the aircraft. The hoist was on the right side of the aircraft. So I was at the controls. And when you're, when you're doing a hoist mission, um, excuse me, like that, they, uh, you know, one of the things that they turn down all your pin switches, so you can't hear the radio. Mm. Uh, so that way you can concentrate. You don't need to be distracted. The other pilot that's not on the controls will answer all the radio calls, talk to whoever needs to be talked to. They'll, they'll take care of that part. So that way you can focus on what you're doing because you will get, you know, task saturated quickly if you don't. And um, so I was focused on what I was focused on, you know, dialed in, locked in. And I didn't realize what was happening outside the aircraft. But um, but yeah, um, there was, uh, you know, sporadic fire from across the, uh, you know, from across the valley. And um, I was none the wiser. So tell me more about being stacked. I, I don't I can't picture it in my mind how you guys were actually one sounds like hovering and then how you were also hoisting if one sixty was above the other. So the, the mountain, if, if you can imagine a mountain and the slope of a mountain, um, 
we were literally, my aircraft was, was about a hundred, maybe 150, 100, maybe 200 feet above the aircraft below me. And we were working, you know, we were working one, um, one part because un unfortunately when the unit that was there, when they took fire, um, they, they couldn't go forward because the, you know, because of the injuries that were, that were at, at the front of the line, they couldn't go backwards because of the injuries that were at the back of the line. Some of them made the decision that they were going to jump, you know, uh, jump to slide down this mountain. Did you see the movie, um, with Mark Wahlberg? Uh, yes. Uh, what, what, what is the name of that movie? Um, it was about uh, the, there were four seals, only one survived, one survivor. Lone Survivor, exactly. Do you remember the scene in Lone Survivor when he jumped off the mountain and like fell for 20 minutes? Yes. Um, um, imagine that. So okay. that happened. That's what those soldiers made the decision to do. They, wow. they better than just sitting here on this path and, and waiting for, you know, waiting for, for a bullet to, uh, to hit them. So they, you know, they cowboyed up and, and went for it. And so we had two separate pickup sites, one on top of one another, you know, the, 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 the site up top had, you know, gunshot injuries and injuries associated with that type of, uh, of, of, of situation. And the one below had, you know, twisted ankles, broken bones and, and everything you could imagine from tumbling down the side of a mountain. So the pickup sites were literally, you know, one on top of, of the other. And, um, the only way to, to get, because you, you literally had critically wounded on, on the bottom pickup side, you had critically wounded on the top pickup side. We couldn't wait for, you know, for one aircraft to go in, do their job and then leave. And then the other aircraft, no, I mean, time, time is time and time waits for no one. So we made the decision that we were going to fly and literally come in, you know, one aircraft on top, like this aircraft was going to work the, the lower pickup site. This aircraft was going to work the upper pickup site because there was nowhere to land. You're literally on the side of a, of a cliff. So I, I couldn't sit a wheel down. I couldn't even get my rotor system. You know, my rotor system would have contacted the mountain before I could even put a wheel down anywhere. So, you know, setting the aircraft down wasn't an option. We had to do this. It had to be a hoist, uh, you know, from a hover, you know, one on top of one another. And um, again, probably not the smartest decision we could have made, but, um, but it worked. Well, is it the senior pilot's decision? Absolutely. That? Yeah, absolutely. So he said, I've been doing this longer. I'm going to take the, the wash from the helicopter above. Uh, we're, we're both we're both doing some really ridiculous things. In that oh, absolutely. Scenario, right? What you're describing is, seems nuts to me. It, it 100 percent. And that's why we got the reaction from General Rodriguez that that, that we did. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. crazy. Um, you know, we went on to be recognized for, you know, just dust off of the year um afterwards but again I'll, I'll i'll take the lives saved over any over over any two inch piece of cloth or any recognition i i wasn't doing my job that evening with the intent of being recognized or being you know um being a, a awarded any any army award I'll, I'll take those lives any day yeah absolutely uh all right so you're a, what a cw2 no at, at the was a, I was a first lieutenant. Ah, okay. So, is it pretty common to transition from from warrant to commissioned officer as an aviator? 
uh, is it pretty common? No. Does it happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and my, my brothers, uh, within, within the warrant officer cohort, man, they gave me the business. Right. They gave me the absolute business, but, um, you as, know, they but should. as they should, as, as they should, as they rightfully should. But you know, one by one, once I made the leap, it's like, Hey, uh, can I, can I, can I talk to you about, about this process and, uh, and find out how you did it? And, and yeah, one by one, you know, you see them following suit, but, um, but I, I was the test uh, subject for the for the first go round, um, you know, in in that generation. Why, why did you want to be a commission officer after having been a warrant? I didn't. I had zero intention of being a commissioned officer. And um, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Avery, love him to death, wicked smart, went on to do great things for the Army. He calls me into his office one day. I was his pilot. I was I was his PI. Um, and uh, any anytime he needed to go somewhere, he would grab me. Hey, gra grab your helmet, grab your flight gear. We need to fly down to, to to South Carolina. We need to fly down to you know this place, that place, the other place. So, for whatever reason, he loved flying with me. So one day he calls me into his office. He says, "Hey, you have your uh, your undergraduate degree, right?" I was like, "Yeah." He goes, um, "Why haven't you applied for uh, for the sixty seven Juliet transition?" I'm like, mm -hmm. what do you? He goes. You know the program where you can walk in as a warrant officer and walk out as a as a 67J, and I was like, sir, if I if if I fall to you know a needs of the army move, my wife is gonna she she she's gonna cut me, you know, like straight down to the white meat. She's she's gonna cut me deep. And he goes, what if I can get you, um, basically TDY and and return right here to uh, to Fort Bragg, uh, which is now Fort Liberty. Um, I was like, well, that, that's a conversation that I could probably, I could probably sell that. So he picks up the phone. Little do I know, you know, he knows the, um, the person that makes the decision on the other end, you know, they're, they're buddies from, you know, years gone. And, um, he goes, all right, cool. Now you're, 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 you're going to come back right back to this command. So you don't have to worry about PCSing. Can I have your application? And I was like, it'll be on your desk first thing tomorrow. Because to me, you're going to pay me more money to do the exact same job that I'm already in love with. Threaten me with a good time. Let's go. Right. So right. I looked at it very black and white. You know, um, I don't have to do anything other than my job. I just get paid more to do it. So let's go. And that's how, many... how go ahead. That's how I became uh, a commissioned officer and, um, you know, left the warrant officer cohort. So how long were you an aviator? Um, I flew, I flew with the, with the 57th Meg for, um, for three years as a warrant officer. And then I went to transition from being a warrant officer to a commissioned officer. I came back to Fort Liberty and I stood up Charlie Company 3082nd, one of the plank owners for that organization. I took them to Afghanistan 0708 and then, um, I, I took a break from the army actually came back in, uh, 2011 and flew until 2016. Okay. So, you know, maybe, it was, uh, you know, a big part of my military experience. Yeah. Uh, there's a theme with you and breaks. D did they all, did they all serve their purpose? They did. They did. They absolutely did. Um, 
the the first break though wasn't my it, it wasn't my choice. My wife told me um, after getting back from Afghanistan, she had had her belly. She had a belly full. She's like, I am done. I am not trying to be a single mom. Um, you've you know you promised me four years and you would get out. You know that was you know eight years ago. Um, and 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 I had to honor that promise to her. You know she she held the fort and and she absolutely did what what she was supposed to do. She she supported me through that wild journey. And, um, and I decided that, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna exit service and I was gonna figure it out. I didn't have a plan of what I was going to do, but I knew I was going to figure it out. And, um, I kept telling myself, this is the right thing to do. You know, you know, you're, you're, you're very talented. You, you can do anything you want. You can do anything you set your mind to, uh, the army doesn't define you. And, you know, I, uh, I resigned my commission at that point. I took the leap, you know, into in to be you know, being a civilian again. And boy, why did I do that? Um, I was miserable. I'm not going to lie. I I was absolutely miserable. Um, I started a business and um, I was miserable, absolutely miserable. Um, I missed, I missed service. I missed, you know, the camaraderie. I missed everything that, that being a service member, um, you know, does for you, gives to you. I missed the BAH. I missed my basic allowance for housing, man. Paying a mortgage out of your money, whew, you know, if I, if I can use Uncle Sugar's cash, I, I want to do that. But um, but no, I, I missed I missed everything. I missed everything that um, I didn't realize um, how much of the army I was going to miss until I left the army, and I I was depressed. I was very depressed, and my wife could see that. Um, you know, I was going through the motions, but I was not happy. And the opportunity came around for me to, you know, for me to lace the boots back up and, um, and she supported it because she knew that, that, that was, you know, truly my happy place. That's where I was supposed to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, uh, made vows to each other. It sounds like you guys were both living them. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so how does an aviator's aviation time end? Cause you're not doing that now. No. Um, for dust off aviators, for 67 Juliet's aeromedical evacuation officers, you really hit a T intersection at 04 at major, um, because there is no job past, um, medevac command and you, you command as a medevac guy at 04 at major. So you either, you either hit that T intersection and go left into the command track where you're going to command from that point forward. You're always going to be in a command position or you make a right and you go to the staff track and you become a staff officer. You become, you know, a 70 hotel, you become a med ops planner, you become a logistics guy, you become, you become something else. Um, so being, being so close to the jobs that I was doing, I was more associated with, the hotel med ops and planning type, you know, style of work. So I picked up the, um, the AOC. I, I went to school to get that air, that, um, um, ah, geez, Louise. Um, <laughs> I went to school to become, um, it AOC. It's fine. yeah, a- AOC area of concentration. My apology. I, I don't, I don't like to give acronyms without, uh, you know, saying what they mean, because not everyone that, that listens to this podcast is going to know what an AOC is, but it's an area of concentration. So 
So I went and picked up um, Seventy Hotel as uh, as my area of concentration, as my secondary. So I was a med ops planner, and as a med ops planner, we're, we're basically paid to think. You know, we're, we're we're paid to you know to plan medical support packages to support you know other operations. And it was a great job. You know, it's an absolutely great job. But um, but yeah, when you when you become a six seven Juliet, you know that you're going to hit that T intersection, and you know which which way you're going to go, command or staff. But there is no way forward. So um, I chose the staff route, and it was again, you know, the right decision for me. And um, you know, I did well as a staff officer. It was uh, it was it was it was a welcome break from you know the running and gunning of of being an aeromedical evacuation officer. So what are you doing now? Uh, I give away money and I pay off student loans. <laughs> you're you're doing what uh, you benefited from years ago. Absolutely. Yes, sir. But um, I, I got a job. I'm, I'm doing a broadening assignment uh, with USAREC, United States Army Recruiting Command. And I am the officer in charge of the San Antonio Army Healthcare Recruiting Station. So we go out with the mission of, of basically finding uh, people who either are or want to be medical professionals. And we give scholarships to the people's to the to the people that want to become medical professionals, be them doctors, nurses, dentists, occupational therapists, physical therapists. If it falls under the umbrella of Army Healthcare, we have scholarships and programs that we can send people to to become professionals. Or if they're already professionals, um, you know, we uh, we recruit people that can go street to seat as medical professionals, doctors, nurses, dentists, and um, you know, one of the great things is that when they take their talents to Team Army. Uh, we can take care of their student loans, their federal student loans. So you get people that are $200,000, $300,000 in debt from finishing a medical degree. And uh, in less than three, well, in three years, we can pay that debt completely off. Um, the decisions you can make from a debt-free status, from a debt-free position are, are uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, de debt-free feels, I imagine, a, a million times better than uh, having hundreds of thousands of dollars hanging over your head and, for, and paying them off over decades. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you have to understand that um, student loan debt was never meant to be paid off. If you look at it by design, how many other, how many other debts do you, do you incur that compound daily? You it's, know, it's ridiculous. It's actually a problem for us in this country, I think. hundred percent. So I can buy a car for $50,000, pay it off in five years, but I take a $50,000 student loan. I'm paying that thing for 30 years. And at the end of the 30 years, I still owe 45,000. And you know? they're going to pull it out of your social security. 100%, you know, yeah. make that, it, 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 it does not make sense. So, you know, I'm fortunate to live vicariously now through the success of others and watching, you know, this next generation of medical professionals, um, you know, come up and take advantage of these opportunities and, um, and really live their best life. Yeah, that's part of the cycle, right? Now, now you're paying it forward. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely paying it forward. And, um, you know, I won't get a chance to do this for, for very much longer. In the next five months, I'll find out what my next assignment is, you know, but, um, you know, I'm focused on just, you know, the, the simple concept, man, bloom where you're planted, wherever I go, just, just do, do what I've, I've, I've always done. Just be successful. So Eric, you, you and I talked about you potentially starting your own podcast. Ah. With, tell, tell me about, you, you referred to her as your best friend. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Is this also your wife? No, 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 no. This, okay. this, 
is this is one of my friends from, you know, from back in high school, from the time I was, you know, running around riding bikes and, and, uh, and, and being, uh, being a kid, but, um, I'm not going to mention her name, but she knows who she is. And she is absolutely, she is absolutely probably one of the most interesting people you'll ever sit down and have a conversation with. And I talked about it with her, you know, forever, forever ago. And I said, I need to record our conversation because our conversations are amazing, you know, because she is, she's, and I, I'm, I'm going to sound so Long Island, but she's just wicked smart. You know, she's, she's super intelligent, wicked smart. And, um, she has a may of, she has a way of making things make sense, you know, and, um, and, and she'll tell me, she'll absolutely tell me when my opinion is wrong and why it is wrong, you know, and from, uh, from her point of view, I, um, I, I have to concede that 99% of the time she's absolutely right. But, um, but yeah, you know, you don't have to say her name, Eric, but I'm eventually going to get her on the podcast, right? You know, that is the goal. Right before I dialed in, um, I, I told her, I said, hey, you know, tonight, tonight's night. Tonight's my podcast. So, you know, uh, she goes, ah, you're going you're to be amazing. She goes, let me know uh, when it comes out so that way I can listen to it. I said, yeah, you can tell me how much I suck. <laughs> but, but no, she's um, she she's that good a friend, and uh, and when when I can get her on your podcast, you'll understand exactly the reason why. I mean, she's she's the person. She's not supposed to be where she is today. She was supposed to have failed a long time ago, but um, you know, she she she's the one that, that that told me that everything you ever learn in life is due to a failure. Mm. You know, you. Don't Earn anything by succeeding. You learn by failing. And, yeah, that's uh, thing, right? Oh yeah, you know. And not to say that that she's failed in life. She definitely hasn't failed in life. You know, she's wildly successful. But you know, she took, you know, she she took the long road to her success. And um, because of the the road she traveled, um, she just has an incredible, you know, um, perspective on on everything. And. Um, you know, she takes nothing for granted and, uh, and, and she's just an amazing person, you know, well-traveled, well, you know, just extremely educated and, um, and, uh, you know, just one of the smartest, most intelligent and, um, and witty, you know, with, with intelligence comes incredible wit, probably one of the funniest people you'll ever have a conversation with. I'm excited at the prospect of her uh, being on the podcast and I'm a little afraid, I have to say. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you, you got you got to bring your A game. You got to bring. <laughs> If not, she's gonna make you look like uh, like like a JV player. All right, hey, so let, let's let's end this episode with uh, you talking about your family. Oh yeah, um, one of my one of my favorite topics. My, um, my my family's amazing, absolutely amazing, and I know everyone thinks that their monkey is the cutest, but uh, but my seventeen year old man, God bless him, God bless him. He's um, he's a uh, he's a junior at uh, at Randolph High School here in. Um, here in San Antonio. And although he doesn't quite know what he's going to do, I told him, Papi, don't worry about it. I didn't know what I was going to do either, you know, but we're going to figure it out. Uh, he got the, the idea of, of maybe becoming an optometrist because, you know, he and his mother both wear glasses. They both have astigmatism and they're both deathly afraid of driving at night because they say that every, every car looks like a, 
you know, a giant starburst coming at them and they, they, they just can't see. So I said, maybe you'll be the person, maybe you'll be the first optometrist to invent the glasses that astigmatism, uh, you know, people that have astigmatism can wear and it doesn't, you know, kill them to drive at night. I said, who knows, you know, who knows? He's like, yeah, yeah. I, I, right. He goes, I can be an optometrist. So we're, we're, we're now, now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to get him, you know, get him down that path, but just, just an amazing kid and an honest to God, good kid. Um, you know, you, you, you can see that, um, you know, at, at, at his heart, he means well for everyone, mm. you know, the most humble kid, uh, that, that you'll ever meet. And, um, and my wife, I mean, geez, Louise, she's the, the reason why I, I've enjoyed any level of success, you know, to this date. Uh, just the most amazing, supportive, um, you know, and, and beautiful woman. Um, she's, uh, you know, she, she herself, you know, wildly accomplished. She's a, she's a doctor of audiology. She's an audiologist by trade. And, um, you know, just uh, ev everything I could have ever asked for, you know, in a, in, in a spouse, in a partner, in a wife. Um, she keeps me on my toes, you know, she keeps me on my toes. Her and my best friend like to tell me how my opinion is wrong all the time. And, uh, you know, not time, they are absolutely right. You know? Sounds like you get it in stereo sometimes. Oh, 100%. 100%. You know, the worst is when, is when, we're, uh, when we're all together. And I, and I got literally them both on, on one side of me. But, um, but no, um, my family is, is absolutely the reason why, you know, I wake up every day and get a chance to utter those nine magical words. You know what those words are. Yeah, you told me and I've already forgotten. Say it again. I'm learning, come on, you got it. I can't believe I get paid to do this. So. Ah, did I lose your connection? Paul, you still with me? The recording is there. I know we're still recording, so I'm 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 making the assumption that that you're that you're getting my audio. We may have to do a little bit of editing for this one. I'm going to give you a call on the other line. No, no I, I can't. Okay, here we go. All right, you're back with me. Are you still there? Paul, are you with me? Can you hear me now? I can hear you. I can hear you now. Yes. Yeah, it's funny that that happened right at the end. I'll have to edit that out. Um, but yeah, all I was saying was thank you very much for doing this tonight. I uh, really appreciate it. Really appreciate your service. Uh, you, you have done things that one tenth of one percent uh, can only understand and, and appreciate. Uh, and and thank your wife too, because uh, she absolutely has been serving alongside you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I appreciate your support. And um, and I thank you for your service. Um, you know, like like I said, I I can't believe I get paid to do this. It, it, it's an amazing job. It's an amazing career. It's an amazing life. And um, I'm gonna ride this till the wheels fall off. I'm, I'm gonna keep. Uh, I'm gonna keep succeeding on purpose. I love it. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.